This is Carte Blanche, the podcast. One story every day that matters. Delve into the issues that impact you. Whether you're in need of a better understanding of the world around you or simply seeking inspiration or unique perspectives, you'll find it all here. South Africa, a country known for its natural beauty and wide open spaces. But despite the many green spaces around us, we don't spend nearly enough time outdoors. Now, research is showing just how beneficial nature can be for our overall well-being. From mental health to childhood development and even addressing crime. The concept of eco-psychology is becoming a big talking point as experts encourage individuals to feel the grass beneath their feet, breathe in the fresh air, watch wildlife go about their day, or get their hands dirty in the garden. Today, we sit down with conservation psychologist, Dr. Andrea Mare Potrider. Exploring the connection between humans and nature, Andrea understands just how important it is to reconnect with the natural world while also healing nature in the process. And if we better understand our relationship with nature, we might just be able to better understand our worsening climate crisis and do something about it. Welcome to the show, Andrea. I was thrilled when you agreed to chat to us because this is such a fascinating topic. Firstly, I must admit, I didn't really know what it was, but as I started reading up on it, I was just completely taken by it. And we're talking about eco-psychology. But firstly, I want you to tell us a bit more about yourself. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you. I also find eco-psychology fascinating, powerful and so relevant in our day and age. I specialize in the relationship between people and nature, and I've been researching this field for about the last eight years, and my PhD was in psychology uh, specifically around this field. So I want you to firstly tell us what is eco-psychology. If we had to break the word up, it combines the term ecology, which is the study of organisms and how they interact with the environment, and that it's combined with psychology, which is the scientific study of mind and behavior, or if you want to think about it, our mental processes. But really at the core of eco-psychology is our emotional relationship or connection with nature. And this term was popularized in the book called The Voice of the Earth in 1992, written by Theodore Rozak. But it wasn't really a new term because traditional cultures and knowledge systems already practiced eco-psychology. It's just that the term really became popular after the book in 1992. What eco-psychology really does is that it challenges a lot of our big myths that we face in the world today. Eco-psychology says that there's an error in how we identify ourselves in a way that deliberately excludes others. And by that, the field means others like in nature or animals. And the field also says that there's an incorrect belief that there's a dualistic separation between us and nature. And the way that we see nature as an object or the other is very mechanistic. And that really doesn't fit with 
how we're supposed to be relating to nature as individuals. And then lastly, eco-psychology says the anthropocentric notion that are the exclusive locus of meaning and value in the world is incorrect. <laughs> I really <laughs> like that part of eco-psychology. So we're not the all-important part of the world we like to think we are. Mm. But I also just wanted to share with you that when I did my research and as I continue to do my research on eco-psychology, our relationship with nature as individuals, our relationship with nature is really, really complex and non-linear. Things that impact our relationship with nature that I've seen in my research ranges from childhood experiences, our relationship with other people, worldviews, values, perceptions, attitudes, even our personality can impact our relationship with nature. And then if you think about South Africa, if we layer all of that complexity with the three evils in our society, inequality, unemployment, and poverty, you get this very complicated thing that you have to untangle during research. So tell us a bit about how you got into eco-psychology. So I practiced as a psychologist for many, many years, and I had an existential crisis where I was in the middle of Ethiopia. I was doing research for a big international company. And the brief from my clients at that point was to find out what are the insecurities that mothers have? And we were going to use those psychological insights to construct a marketing and branding campaign to get these insecure mothers to buy a particular product that will make them feel if they buy this product, they're now the best mother on earth. And as I was sitting in a small house in the middle of Ethiopia, doing my job that I've been doing for many years Somehow, I just realized that something wasn't right. I just couldn't connect to the work I was doing anymore. I was aware of the negative environmental impact that marketing has. And I came home and I just started soul searching and I came across that particular book, The Voice of the Earth, and I started reading it and it resonated with me. And I ended up closing my business and then I decided to do my PhD in psychology to focus on eco-psychology in South Africa, because although the field really started being popularized in the early 90s, at that point, when I started doing my PhD, there was very little empirical research, especially in Africa, on our relationship with nature. And that's sort of how my journey started. So I want us to get into the more practical side of eco-psychology. And firstly, there's a lot of reference to exposure to nature. But explain to us firstly, what is exposure to nature? So initially, when I started doing research, my definition of what qualifies as nature is wild nature. That includes natural abundance, biodiversity, ecosystems, limited impacts. You know, you, you get that kind of picture. And my research was mainly in the urban environment. So I quickly started realizing, well, that's not really a realistic base line for people that live in big cities, because if we use that, it means people in big cities have no way of ever connecting with yeah, nature. Exactly. They're doomed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So then I started unpacking that into different aspects of nature. So if you have to think about similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we can look at nature like that. So at the bottom, we have this wild, pure nature, abundance, ecosystems, biodiversity. Then one level above that, 
we can see nature as impacted or imprinted wild spaces. So that could be private nature reserves where people have houses and they live there. Then one layer above that could be manicured nature. So that would be parks or open green spaces, typically in urban environments. One level above that, contextual nature. So That is nature that provides context in our lives, such as our gardens, trees in our streets, maybe looking at nature while we're traveling to work, looking through a window. Then there's the representation of nature through TV programs. And then at the top, we have to realize and remember that we are nature too, and our bodies are an expression of nature. And then obviously, through this whole pyramid that I've just unpacked for you, there's different spaces in between these classifications, depending on who you speak to. From an evolutionary point of view, why can't we just carry on living in our brick houses, spending time in offices? Why do we need to be in contact with nature at least for an hour or I don't know how long? Why is that necessary? If you think about the history of humanity as, let's say, walking through a forest for two and a half kilometers and walking through this forest at first It's biodiversity, we connect it with nature, we're living off the land. Then the last couple of hundred meters that we walk through this forest, it becomes cut lawn, which represents the agricultural age. And we continue walking through this once forest. And the last step is it becomes concrete, and that's the industrial age. And then as we get to the end, there's our small toes sticking into the digital age, And what I'm really trying to explain through this is that throughout the history of most of the time we spent was in close contact with nature. So we are designed to be in close contact with nature. Our brains are designed for that. Physically, we are designed for that. But our urban environments are notoriously bad for our mental health and physical health because we're not designed for a concrete jungle. And there's a hypothesis that's called the biophilia hypothesis. And this was proposed in 1984. And what it says is that humans have an innate tendency to connect with life and lifelike processes due to the evolutionary development of our cognitive and emotional faculties. But we see that in practice today. We have the worst mental health we've ever had. Physically, people are ill, they're obese, they're unhappy. And I know that there's a lot of other factors that also contribute to this, but our disconnection from nature is one of the biggest contributors to how badly we are doing with mental and physical health globally, in my opinion. So let's quickly go through some of the benefits of eco-psychology. So I like to break it down into three main benefits. So the first is what we call attention restoration theory. And the benefit of exposure to nature, then in terms of this particular theory, refers to the processes that people go through when recovering from something that has reduced their ability to cope. So nature restores your attention after you've experienced something that made you feel like you can't cope with life and the demands that life give you. The second theory that explains the main benefit is called stress reduction theory. And this is based on the assumption that natural environments can evoke rapid positive emotions and block 
negative emotions. So really what these two theories talk about is that spending time in nature reduces our stress and it's been measured through reduced blood pressure, reduced cortisol levels, a reduction in heart rate, but also nature helps us focus and makes us more creative and able to solve problems. But then very interestingly last year, there was a paper published that was around what is called the biodiversity hypothesis. And what these researchers found was that contact with a natural environment promotes immune balance and protects us from inflammatory diseases, which in turn helps us with our psychological resilience. So that really shows us that the benefits of spending time in biodiverse spaces in nature has both psychological benefits, but now it also shows it has a lot of physiological benefits as well, working through our gut microbiome. So let's approach it like we would medication. Is there a minimum dosage that we need to get the full benefit? So before I try and answer that, I just want to clarify that time in nature is different to connection to nature. So Mm -hmm. if you're walking through a forest or a tree canopy, and you, for example, on your phone, you're on nature, but because you're on your phone and they've measured this with brain activity, you don't get any of the benefits. So for me, the quality of our experience is as important as the quantity of our experience. What the evidence does show is that a minimum of two hours per week of nature contact could show some therapeutic effect. And a lot of the research done on forest bathing, which is one of the therapeutic modes of nature contact, in forest bathing, sometimes they can see people having physiological benefits after just 20 minutes in a forest. But there's really no one size fits all. Mm. Obviously, we don't all have a forest nearby. If we're stuck in the office most hours of the day, how do we get the most out of nature within a very urban space? You know, it's actually quite tragic because a study done showed that South Africans spend a median time of 19.1 hours a day indoors. And the most common way people experience nature is through a window. (laughs) Mm, So it really translates into why we're seeing that South Africa has really really poor mental health when we compare our mental health globally to other countries. So one study took post-surgical patients who were in hospital. They put some of them in a room with a window that overlooked trees rather than a brick wall. And then they put some patients in a room that overlooked just a brick wall. And then they compared how these surgical patients recovered. And those that overlooked the trees rather than the brick wall recovered more rapidly and they required less pain relief. So there you can already see that seeing nature through a window could have a benefit for you. Then there was another interesting study that showed, I think the study was in Germany, where just living within 100 meters of a tree had the ability to reduce the need for antidepressant drugs. So there you can see that if you have trees in your street and walking in your street under a tree canopy can already have a positive impact on you. Then there was an interesting study that compared the impact of bird, water and wind sound on our mental health. And they found that bird and water sounds had a profound impact on our mental health. 
So really what I'm trying to say is that connecting with nature isn't just spending time in a forest or walking through a biodiverse park. It's also looking at nature. It's listening to nature. It's watching the sun rise. That is a good way of connecting to nature. But also we need to take time out from our technology. It causes a hangover in terms of our brain activity. It means that our brains can't restore when we connect it to technology all the time. So that would be what I would suggest in terms of connecting with nature in urban environments. What actually happens to the brain when we are exposed to nature? So the research has shown that when you experience nature, so connecting with nature sensorially, emotionally, you immersing yourself in nature, it enhances our working memory, our attention, it relieves the fear and stress processes in our brain that's related to that. And then as I mentioned, physiologically, our heart rate, our blood pressure, cortisol levels reduce. Researchers said that the amygdala, which is the brain region activated during a task that evokes social stress, and it's the processing center for our emotions, they said, let's go and look at what happens with this part of our brain. So they did MRI scans to examine the brain before and after walking in nature, but not an urban environment. And they looked at what happens to your brain after 90 minutes of walking in this environment. And what they found is that there was a reduced level of rumination and lower stress-related amygdala activity after walking in nature. Then the World Journal of Biological Psychiatry also used MRI to examine what happens to our brains. And very, very interestingly, they found that time spent outdoors, it had an impact on how we process sensation, perception, movement, learning speech, and even cognition. And one of the most interesting studies that I came across was where they used nature activity therapy for people with fibromyalgia. And even then, they showed that nature has positive impacts on their well-being. So it really works at different levels of our brain. So we can't really have this conversation without also looking at climate change. And with that comes the concept of extinction and the threat of species going extinct. So how do we find peace in nature when we are constantly hearing about all of these awful things happening to the environment? There is a lot of trauma that's happening because of natural disasters and environmental destruction, and it has a significant impact on mental health whether it's consciously or unconsciously for people. There's, for example, a term called solastalgia, which is the opposite of the word nostalgia. So nostalgia is a positive memory, but solastalgia is this negative memory. And the term really describes the distress caused by environmental change that affects our sense of place and our identity. And there was a study done that showed that people who were living in areas where there was mountaintop removal coal mining taking place, they suffered from major depression compared to residents in non-mining areas. And we can also see that with environmental and natural disasters, 
There's a decline in people's well-being when they experience this. So disaster victims have been shown to get depression, PTSD, they fear, they have other mental health challenges. But how do we deal with this? Okay, because Mm -hmm. it, it does feel a bit like doom and gloom. You know, we switch on the news and we hear about extinctions. And we also have an extinction of experience ourselves where we see nature being lost. What I like to tell people is we need to feel in control. And how we do that is by starting with what we have control over. So starting in our own backyards and protecting and restoring the nature that's in our close areas. So it could be, for example, rewilding our own lives, creating, restoring biodiversity. And the way we can also rewild our own lives is to start living more according to the seasons, doing a lifestyle order to see how we can reduce our personal impact on nature and also to try and make nature more accessible. And what I mean by that is a lot of people in South Africa don't necessarily have access to their own garden or safe green areas. So what we need to do is to create those areas at our churches, at our schools, in our communities, finding little blocks of lifeless ecological deserts and just rewilding them and making them safe spaces that we can then enjoy. And I also think that we need to focus on where we can make a difference for species. So I know of two women in Cape Town, two mothers, they were young mothers at the time, and they saw the endangered western leopard toad being decimated in their area by cars driving. Mm. And they just said to each other, not on our watch. We want our children to be able to experience this beautiful western leopard toad when they're older. And they started forming a volunteer group that during the big migration went out on rainy nights and helped the toads cross busy roads to get to the ponds where they then breed. And then after the breeding, these volunteers would then go out again and help them cross the busy roads as they make their way back to where they came from, which is usually people's gardens. For me, that is a beautiful example of how we can take control over something that's in our own backyard. And I can imagine that that in itself, the process of healing nature also then plays a a big part in our own mental health because you kind of, you get that immediate positive feedback in a sense. So can you tell us a bit more about the importance of healing nature and how that fits into the whole eco-psychology conversation? So I'd like to go back to the narratives that we create in our lives. So as we get bombarded with all these different narratives, and a lot of them are often negative, as you mentioned. What we can do to heal nature and also to heal ourselves is to change the narrative to a redemptive rather than a contamination story. And what I mean by that is we need to change the way we tell our stories and the way we end our stories. So do the story that we tell ourselves about nature end in it's all lost, it's all going extinct, I might as well just consume and party and seek pleasure as much as I can? Or do we change that narrative to end in a story that's on a good note? I did the best that I could. I helped a specific species in this way. I created a biodiversity exclusion zone in my garden and I got the birds to come back and the bees to come back. So we just have to change our narrative and how we act on that in our lives. 
I understand that some governments are recognizing the importance of eco-psychology and really having natural spaces for people in urban areas. I read about some schools and corporates that started incorporating things like bigger windows, having trees outside windows to allow people to be more aware of nature around them throughout the day. But in terms of the South African context, obviously we have a lot of open spaces, even within the urban areas. But have you seen anything in South Africa in terms of embracing eco-psychology, either in the corporate field or by schools or government? Has there been any talk in that direction? So there's what is called the Green Building Movement, GBCSA, in South Africa. And this movement focuses on exactly that, that you've been speaking about, biophilic designs. How do we bring nature back into office spaces, particularly because we spend so much of our time Mm. in these spaces. So the green building movement in South Africa has been doing incredible work in that particular area. And I have seen that municipalities are also putting importance on protecting green spaces, rivers, and especially in rural areas and creating new game reserves. But the most profound things that I've seen that really embraces the core tenets of eco-psychology is in the volunteer space. So there's an organization called Ocean Pledge, a small volunteer group that actually takes youth into nature. They get people to make pledges around their plastic use. They get people to connect to the ocean. And that is a beautiful way of how eco-psychology can flourish in a community space. Then there's also organizations like Nature Connect and I Am Water, and they do incredible work with kids as well in terms of connecting with nature. Mm. Then I've also seen a lot, and you've mentioned that, you know, a lot of community gardens coming up. And in eco-psychology, we call that horticultural therapy, where you start working in a garden at school or a church or in your own backyard, where you plant vegetables and you grow your own food. It is really good for our mental health to actually do that. Another aspect, you know, especially in South Africa, where crime is such a big problem. Some studies internationally have shown that exposure to nature can, in fact, lead to a decrease in crime in some areas and aggression. Have you found anything in your research about this? So I haven't specifically researched that directly in South Africa, but it makes complete sense because the amygdala regulates our emotions such as fear and aggression. And research on urban green spaces also showed that crime rates decreased following the greening of community spaces. And that was also done on greening vacant land in urban land parcels, etc. All of that has been shown to have a decrease in aggression and violence in particular areas. But what was the most fascinating was they did a study on prisoners and they took prisoners with a view of nature and looked at whether that had an impact on them. And prisoners who had a view of nature, trees, for example, showed increased life satisfaction and increased well-being. But this is where it gets interesting. Researchers took that a bit further and said, okay, let's see what happens when we show prisoners nature videos. Will that have an impact on them? So they showed a set of prisoners nature videos three to four times a week. And it's fascinating. Their levels of aggression 
decreased significantly with 26% fewer violent interactions in the prison environment. So you can see that we go back to that different levels of nature exposure and how they can have different impacts on different parts of our society when it comes to aggression and violence. Let's quickly talk about childhood development. How important is nature exposure? So from my research, nature exposure is incredibly important during childhood. I've seen in my research that when a child is not exposed to quality and quantity nature, they grow up as adults that are likely to be more disconnected from nature. Children are spending less time in nature compared to 20 years ago because of academic pressures, safety concerns, technology, structured activities. And it doesn't help that South Africa, out of 43 nations in the world, was one of the countries with the most screen time. So it's, it's not really helping our case here for children. But spending time outdoors is important for children because of the vitamin D exposure, but also because of the psychological benefits. When we look at children who don't spend an enough time outdoors, they are likely to experience increased levels of stress, isolation, depression, obesity. They struggle to focus on day-to-day -day tasks, and they might even express behavioral issues. And what was alarming for me is when I started looking at children and how they're impacted by nature globally as part of my literature review, I found a study that showed in the UK that children were more able to accurately identify cartoon characters than local wildlife species. Wow. <laughs> and that, that is scary because it shows that there's an extinction of experience for children, but also from eco-psychology, we see that when we care for something, that is when we want to protect it. But if children aren't connecting to nature, how are they going to care for it? So there was a study that compared children from two daycare centers. These children had similar socioeconomic backgrounds, but the one daycare was surrounded by buildings and brick walls, and the other was surrounded by orchards and, and untamed gardens and woodland. And what the researchers found was that children from the more natural daycare were found to have fewer sick days, better motor coordination, and better attention and concentration capacity. But that was in Sweden. So then there was a very, very interesting study done in a lower income area in the Western Cape. And they wanted to look at children's perception of the natural environment in South Africa. And what they found was that although these children perceived nature as a threatened place and that there's a culture of inconsideration amongst people towards nature, what was profound of the study is that these children saw nature as a dangerous place. It was characterized by crime, violence, and pollution and it caused them to feel fear, anxiety, and distress when they thought of nature. You've mentioned the term, the extinction of experience. And I just want to understand what exactly you mean by that. So the extinction of experience comes back to what we call a baseline level. When I think of when my parents grew up, there was a baseline level of nature that they were exposed to. I remember my mother telling me she used to have owls in their back garden and when they were injured, she used to rehabilitate them and rewild them and release them. And as our generations start 
getting more and more exposure to nature, there's less and less nature to be exposed to. So that baseline level starts diminishing. So our children will have less nature. Their children will have less nature because of extinctions. And eco-psychology calls that the extinction of experience. So as more species go extinct, as we lose our natural biodiverse spaces, so we also lose this opportunity to experience and be connected to nature. And that is the extinction of experience. Some might say that the COVID pandemic forced many of us to reconnect with the environment. In my case, I started tending to plants. I also got into the whole birdwatching club that many of us joined during lockdown. But you published a study that found that it's actually the opposite, that we actually didn't reconnect with the environment as much as we think we did. Can you elaborate a bit on your findings? So what happened was all of that that you said, and as a researcher in psychology, I thought, whoa, okay, let me test that. Let me test whether the COVID has made us closer to nature. What happened during COVID is what we call a mortality salience induction event. What that means is that Usually, we don't really think of our own deaths. On a normal day, you know, it's, it's somewhere there in our subconscious. We express it in certain ways, trying to leave a legacy. But what COVID did was it made that fear of our death rapidly conscious. All of a sudden, we didn't know if we go out, are we going to get COVID? Are we going to die? We heard of people dying that we knew, people around us. So there was a lot of fear. And what that means is, psychologically speaking, that fear of our own death that became conscious during COVID cascaded into our relationship with nature. And what that meant and what my research showed is that people who were already connected to nature, appreciated nature, they valued nature. During COVID, they became more connected to nature. It increased their love and care for nature and the benefits they received from nature. But those people in South Africa who before COVID were not connected to nature, so they were disconnected, they were pleasure-seeking. For them, COVID made them even more distant from nature. So COVID had this kind of enhancing effect on our relationship with nature. Either it enhanced our positive relationship with nature or it enhanced our negative relationship with nature. Mm. To wrap things up, for those listening, I'm sure there are a few people thinking, you know, this is just some tree hugger, hippie type concept. Like this isn't important to me. What do you have to say to those who doubt the importance of nature and who just think this is just some happy clappy conversation that doesn't impact me? Look, we are facing a climate, environmental and mental health crisis. And these are not independent from each other. They are totally interconnected with each other. South Africa ranks as one of the worst countries when it comes to mental health. And when we look at the city of Cape Town, for example, the extinctions happening on a biodiverse space is also incredible. There's no doubt in my mind that there's a correlation. The more extinct biodiversity goes, the worse our health becomes. We weren't made 
to live in a lifeless world. So we are connected to nature whether we like it or not. And therefore, the destruction of nature will have a profoundly negative impact on our psychological and physical lives, and especially that of our children. And for those that think this is a happy, clappy, hippie kind of movement, the research is becoming very, very clear that we have to heal our relationship with nature to heal ourselves. And therefore, we need to adjust the way we assess our internal lives and the way that we relate and interact with nature on a daily basis. It's essentially the idea of what you put in is what you get out. And I I think that feeds into this conversation. But this has been absolutely fascinating. You've certainly given me a lot to think about, especially those studies in the prisons. But thank you so much, Andrea, for your time and for informing us and telling us how important nature is, because I think it's something that we just kind of accept as an ever-present thing in our lives. And we don't realize really how important it is to have have an actual active relationship with nature. Thank you so much for having me. I just love talking about eco-psychology and I really enjoyed my time with you. Thanks for listening. Why not share Carte Blanche, the podcast with family and friends, even those living overseas. They can find us on Spotify and all other major platforms.